Heliastes 5, verses 8 to 20. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth, except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen from under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour, and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. While we all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born, We can't take our riches with us. And this, too, is a serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Even so, I've noticed one thing, at least, that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them, and to accept their lot in life. And it is, good, it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this indeed is a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying their life that they take no time to brood about over the past. Thank you, Margo. Did you know that ver- that chapter was in the Bible? <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Like, wow. Oh, and thank you, Ron, and uh, for sharing. And uh, our hearts are touched by the incredible stories that uh, of the sacrifices that are coming out of Nepal. Thank you for sharing. God bless you guys. Uh, And I'm glad you're here this morning, that you got up out of bed and you said, we're going to go to church this morning and we're going to see what God has to say to us today. So would you stand for a moment and let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you. I thank you for your people this morning. What a blessing to have people who love you, and who walk with you. Thank you for the presence of your spirit in our midst today. Always with us. You say, you always remind us that where two or three are gathered in your name, that there you are right in the midst of them. So thank you, Lord. We just acknowledge your presence this morning. We ask you to uh, open our hearts and speak to us. And Lord, maybe you have things that are quite different to say to us than I would have intended, but they're, they're your thoughts. 
So, Lord, may the freedom be here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're in a short series of messages that we have captioned, Unstuck. And you've got some sermon notes available this morning. And one of the great sticking points of life is our finances. I don't know if that's true for you or not. Um, But there always is the potential that it could be that this might be a sticking point in your life. My background is English, but I think if you actually traced my roots, uh, MacDonald, you would probably go back to Scotland. So uh, a German, an Irishman, and a Scotsman are going out to lunch together, and they decide to eat in an outdoor cafe. They sit down, they order uh, soup, and uh, yeah, those soup, doesn't that look good? Uh, and uh, three flies come cruising overhead and they look down at those delicious bowls of soup and they all dive bomb down. Each one lands in three soup bowls. The very neat and organized German, why am I catching Pastor Norb's eye, uh, takes his silver spoon and just carefully dips the fly out of the soup, onto a nice linen napkin, folds it up oh so nicely, and puts it off to the side. The Irishman grabs the whole bowl and goes, blows the fly out of the soup, blows half the bowl of soup away. Nevertheless, the fly is out, and he solves his problem with the fly. The Scotsman carefully reaches into the bowl, picks up the little fly by its wings, and says, Hey, you, put that soup back. I paid for that. Spit it out. Get it out. And that's my background. (laughs) Now you know why this Scotsman is so stingy. I look back on my family life with mom and dad... And actually, I think I learned a lot from them in terms of their financial wisdom. Dad never really got to go to school. Well, he got to the third grade or the fourth grade, and then he had to, he had to stay home to work on the farm. So he actually felt very inadequate his whole life in terms of reading, in, ter- in terms of doing the financial books. But actually, he was very streetwise, or you might say farm-wise. And he made some very good decisions. He was a good manager. And when he died, uh, he had taken a small operation of a farm to quite a significant level. Mom was an entrepreneur in her own right. She made good money every year by raising chickens. She bought 500 of those little chicks every year. And uh, she raised them up. She uh, got them into laying hens. And, and uh, so she sold uh, hatching eggs or regular eggs to customers And it was her money. And she worked very hard for it. And the rest of the guys in the family gave her a lot of grief over her raising chickens. And they were doing the bigger things. But she was very faithful. And she had her money. She found financial freedom by raising those chickens every year. They were prudent with their money, uh, but never stingy. I didn't get a lot of verbal teaching from them about money. 
you know, I wished we could have talked more about philosophy and how they felt about their money. If my guess is right, because we didn't have the inside track, but if my guess is right, I think I noticed that they kept growing in their understanding of biblical principles of giving. I think they started way back here, but I, I, I sensed that they really did grow in understanding what it meant to be a biblical giver. I wish we could have talked more about that. And I say that uh, this morning to invite you as parents to uh, talk to your kids about how you manage your finances. I don't mean that you should badger your five-year-old about RSPs and annuities, uh, any of that. Now we're going to sit down and talk philosophies and a good investment strategy. But as they grow, to feed into them, what is your philosophy? And they will appreciate it, if not now, 10 years later, 20 years later. And maybe it's just a thought, a well-placed thought, an intentional thought, that as the kids grow up, they'll learn something from you that will be quite life-changing. And they won't have to learn the hard way. So tell them how you operate. Tell them how you think. Tell them what your philosophy is. You know, for some, it's only about the math. Money management is simply about the math. Some financial planners will make that very clear as well. And not all. It's, it's only about the math when you think of, number one, your earnings. How do you maximize and increase your earnings? Secondly, it's about the spending. The math is that if you keep your spending below your income, you're going to be on the right side of the ledger. You've got some financial margin in your life. Thirdly, the math says it's important to save. And who can deny that? It's important to save. You need to have a contingency fund. You want to have a little cushion in life in case you lose your job. And then financial planners will talk to you about investment opportunities where you can put your money for the best return. And investments are cool because instead of you working for money, when you have an investment plan going, money starts to work for you. And, mean, and that really gets the heart pumping for numbers guys because they start talking about the magic of compounding interest and then out comes the graphs and honestly it's quite impressive to see how your investments can grow money for you and then those who are into the math uh, also talk about giving but they usually lose their passion at this point Here's where the numbers-only people get a little crazy about their advice because numbers-only people are quite agreed that when you give money away, it's actually quite counterproductive to your financial goals. You give it away? <laughs> you give your money away? And although they don't say it too loudly, they think it to give your money away is kind of stupid. Smart people don't give their money away. They keep it. Now, not every financial advisor will say that, and I know that. The average Canadian gives away about $460 a year, according to the 2010 stats, which might be as high as 2.5% of their income. So they give something away, but not much. The average Christian might uh, gives what might be close to about 3% of their income, maybe not quite. So a little better, but these are followers of Christ who have received amazing grace and walk with a generous God. 3%. We can learn from the math people. 
We can learn from those who operate from the numbers perspective. But you know what? There's more. It's not all about the math. Look at the world. We are in financial stress all over the place. Individuals, families, organizations, governments, nations are encountering financial stress. Nepal is the country, as an example, going through tremendous financial stress. Everything doesn't quite work according to the numbers. Seems like there are a lot of other variables as well. When Margaret and I got married, we didn't have much. The good thing was we didn't realize we didn't have much, and we were just like every other couple. Uh, we didn't have much when we started. But we made a decision from the first day of marriage to underscore a biblical principle that God put in place right from the beginning. And I give Mark credit for that because I think she was the leader in that perspective. And that is, wherever, whatever you want God to bless in your life, you put him first in that area. If you want God to bless your career, you put him first in your career. If you want God to bless your finances, you put him first in your finances. If you want God to bless your time, you put him first in your time. And if you bring the God perspective and put his perspective central to living and see the math part of finances un under the umbrella of God, well, then you have a combination that really works. Stressing over finances. We think about these things a lot, every day. I know we all do. We're always thinking about our finances. And sometimes we think about the big questions, like will we have enough money? Will we be able to do the things we want to do? Will our money stretch? Will we be able to pay our bills? Will we be able to manage our money as well? And it's said that the most sensitive nerve in the human body is the one that runs from the brain to our wallet. That's because money has significant power in our lives. I love that passage this morning. If you get a moment, take five minutes and reread the fifth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you see how we get stuck in the stress of our finances. Wise King Solomon says, even if you're poor, here are the three points to the chapter and I'll say them quickly. Even if you're poor, you still have to pay taxes. And there's a lot of stress in having to pay taxes. Still true in 2015. Taxes stress us out. The second stress is what Solomon says, those who love money will never have enough. If you love money, it will drug you. And you will go along through your whole life. And this is your goal, to have more money. And the problem with that is that all through life and at the end, you'll never be content or satisfied because you'll always think you need more. You start to lose sleep over your money, how to make it, how to keep it, how to grow it, how to manage it. And when money is loved, it causes great stress. Howard Hughes had an insatiable love for money and power. He was convinced that more money would bring him satisfaction. He died a billionaire junkie. His passion for more led him to the end of his rainbow, 
only to find emptiness and futility and destruction. So the love of money leads to dissatisfaction. The hope that it would bring great fulfillment never happens. And Solomon reminds us of another stress in chapter 5 that money can be lost. And the financial stress of uh, 2008 and the financial crisis is such a reminder. Sometimes our money is lost because of bad decisions on our part or sometimes it's outside of our control. It's what's happening on Bay Street. It's what's happening on Wall Street. It's what's happening in the world. And we can't do anything about it. We get stressed because we fear we might lose what we have. So King Solomon reminds us of a few areas in which we get stuck, and it leads to financial stress. But can I give you four ways to help us get unstuck from our financial stress? They're not the only four, but they're, they're an important four. And so let me have you remember four things. Number one, Remember, God is my source. Remember, God is my source. That's the big picture for all of us. This is the umbrella statement as we walk with God, and that is to remember that God is the source of all I have. He is the source of all that I own or all that I need. This is the very first understanding that helps us deal with financial stress. If we miss this one. We may live with financial stress our entire lives because we're going to be inclined to think that it's all about me or the source of my supply is my job or my bank account or my excellent investment program. But you know what? It's possible that by the time we meet here next week, we could have lost it all. Our job, our investments, our savings, our health. Your salary is not your source because you can lose it. We must put our security in something that cannot be taken from us. Otherwise, we get very nervous about what if we did lose our job. Our security is not in our job. God is the source of your supply. If he closes one door, he can open another door. Deuteronomy 8.18 Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful. Wow, doesn't that say it? Remember the Lord your God. He's the one who gives you the power to be successful. He's your security. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's a good reminder for me that it's all about Him because He owns it all. And I am just so privileged to be able to walk through this life and whatever He's given to me to be able to manage it as effectively as I can to trust back to him what he's put into my care. Secondly, remember to honor God first. 
Whatever you want God to bless in your life, you put him first in. God asks us to put him first in our giving. And then he gives us a pattern of how to do that. We call it tithing. There's a promise given to us when we tithe. And the promise is found in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Listen to this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. And then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Well, that's a promise. Honor the Lord with the best part of your income and he will provide for you. Notice what it says. Honor the Lord by giving him the leftovers of all of your income. Now, it doesn't say that. It says by giving him the first part or the best part. And that's the promise. He says, you put me first in your finances and I will bless you financially. And that is what's called tithing. Tithe means ten or tenth. It is ten percent right off the top when I get a paycheck. Ten percent goes back to God. If the check is for a hundred dollars, then ten dollars is given to honor God. Now, why did God put this in the Bible? To give the tithe to him. Well, the purpose of tithing is found in Deuteronomy 14, 23. And here it is. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. There's a principle here of honoring God. It's not that he needs our money to make the universe work. It's that we need to constantly honor him and know in our hearts that he's number one in our lives. It recognizes God as the leader of your life. And it is to him that you've given your loyalty and your love and your commitment. It says, I'm grateful for how God has worked in my life, how he's worked in my past. It says, I'm grateful that God is number one in my life right now. And it says, I'm aware that God is going to lead me into the future and he will take care of me. And the tithe is saying all of that. God says, will you trust me? Will you demonstrate to me that you trust me? And when we tithe, we say to God, I'm grateful for all you've done. Grateful how you've been with me in the past. I'm thankful for this moment. I trust you for the coming days. And I don't know what's ahead, but I trust you that you will take care of me in the future. In the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the Lord says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. It's a mind-boggling verse. It's the only verse in the scripture where God says, you can test me. You can just, I just dare you. Just, just test me on this and try me. And you give to me and I'll give to you and we'll see who wins. He says, bring it into the storehouse. Bring it into the storehouse. Tithing is an act of worship where I bring to my place of worship 
to come before the Lord and say, you are number one in my life. Well, some say uh, the tithe is an Old Testament teaching. What about the New Testament? The New Testament teaches us to go beyond the tithe, to use it as a benchmark, but God has blessed us and calls us to give beyond that. And one person said, I try to increase my giving by 1% a year if I can. So if it's not 10%, uh, then I try to increase it to 11%. And then the next year, if I can, I move it up to 12%. So I w- you would know this man if I was to say uh, who he is. He's not in this congregation, but you would know who he is. So the Lord blessed him. And he came into royalties in the millions of dollars. He's now living on 10% and giving away 90%. Because he wants to have the same principle in his life. He wants to honor God in his life. And his giving is a way to say, God, it's all yours. And you have made me the, 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 man, the manager of this wealth. But I don't want to presume that it's mine. It really is yours, and I give it to you. And you know what happens? Because the Lord can trust this man, he gives him even more. And this man is now working on 91% to the Lord and working on giving 92% to the Lord. And that is an incredible story, and it's a true story of what God's doing in his life because he's, he's willing to say, God, it all belongs to you. And I simply want to be a good manager of what you've entrusted to me. Whatever you want God to bless in your life, you put him first in that area. What's that all about? It's about recognizing that God is the owner and we are the stewards. And he simply asks us to understand that and to honor him with our finances. And all the joy of blessing others. To bless his work because we honor God. We call it proportional giving. Paul said on the first day of every week, put aside some of what you've earned during the week and use it for the offering. Listen to this. The amount depends on how much the Lord has helped you earn. So you earn a lot. You give a lot. You earn a little. You give a little. It's called proportional giving but it flows out of the foundation of the tithe. Use the tithe as the baseline, and because of grace and God's generosity in your life, give according to how God has blessed. We really get unstuck when we can authentically say, God, it's all yours. And God, every paycheck, the first part belongs to you, and the more you bless me, the more I give back to you. You know, and more and more often people are, are, are giving online. And that's a wonderful way to do it. You can go to our website and register. And after the first time of registering, it takes about five minutes. Then you can go back the second time and the third time and from there on in. And it only takes a few seconds. But it's a great way to, to, to quickly give and to make your contribution. Or some people have automatic withdrawal. That, that works for me. I know that every month, about the fifth day of the month, money is coming out of my account and it's going to the ministry at TCC, and it just 
automatically happens. So to take the stress from your financial life, start with these God principles. Remember, God is the source of everything. And remember to honor God first. Whatever you want God to bless in your life, you put Him first in. There are some laws that God has put in place. There are laws of health that if you follow them, you'll be healthier. There are laws of relationships that if you follow them, you'll have stronger relationships. And the Bible teaches there are spiritual laws of finances. And his first principle is that we honor him with the first part. And when people do that, they receive the blessing. And it comes to you in many different ways. This is not prosperity gospel. This is the teaching of the word that as we are faithful, God is more than faithful to us. Thirdly, remember to establish a financial plan. I read the story of a, of a man who told about his first memory uh, that went back to when he was just three years old. It was in the middle of the Great Depression and his parents told him that they would give him a weekly allowance and he would receive one penny for each year of his life. So when he was three years old, he would receive three cents a week. They would have him take one penny to church to give to God, one penny to put into his savings, and then he would have one penny to use just wherever he wanted. And it started when he was three. Now, you don't know much about the value of money when you're three. But as he grew older, his parents kept giving him an allowance. And uh, the first part to God, the second part to savings, and the third part for his needs. And the, the plan stuck. And today, he's one of the wisest and most generous people you can imagine. But it started with a plan. If you don't have a plan, I think the 10-10-80 plan is a great place to start. Many of you know it well, and you've practiced it through your lifetime. It's very simple. Take the first 10% of whatever God sends your way, Take it right off the top and give it to God's work. Then take the second 10% and put it into savings. And then with the rest of your money, pay your bills and whatever it takes to do life. Someone asked John Rockefeller years ago, the founder of Standard Oil, how did you get to be so wealthy? He said he called it the 10-10 principle. He said, I, I tithe 10%, I give 10%, uh, and then I, I save 10%, and then I live on the 80%. Well, even 80% would have been huge for Rockefeller in his senior years. Well, I love how Solomon puts this in one of his Proverbs. In the house of the, wives, uh, of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Or in the Living Bible, it says, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. He never puts anything aside for saving. The average Japanese person saves 25% of his or her income. That's incredible. In Europe, it's about 18%. In Canada, it's much, much, much lower. A lot of people are going to get to retirement with absolutely nothing saved. 
And the implication of that is that a lot of people are going to be forced to keep working to offset their expenses and the cost of living. 10% into savings. If you could start that when you're younger, it's amazing how your money can work for you over the years. When you save, you make your money work for you. While you're sleeping, your money in whatever investment is making money for you. Nice to be making money when you're sleeping. And even, but if you don't have any money stored up somewhere in a savings, invested somewhere, then the only time you're making money is when you're working. Let your money work for you. Remember to establish a financial plan, a savings plan with good investments. And we can go back to the book of Ecclesiastes and read what Solomon said about investments. But divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. We would say it today, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Little by little, keep working away at putting money aside for savings and investments, and you'll be amazed how it grows. And it reduces stress because you have a plan and you are working the plan. And then fourth, remember to say, enough. Someone asked Howard Hughes, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And you know his response. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. We live in a whole culture that is built on this. And I think all of us feel the pressure to conform. It takes strong people to say, no, this is enough. The culture says more, 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 more. And, and we have a subtle way of asking, how well are you doing in life? How many square feet there? Uh, how many bathrooms? How many horsepower? Uh, how, how many upgrades? Uh, how many destinations? What if we said, I will declare the Joneses next door the winners. I'll congratulate them. My level of consumption is enough. If God blesses me abundantly, if my income doubles, I will make every effort to increase my giving, not my acquiring. I mean, wouldn't that do something? Wouldn't that be countercultural? Money in our day is our primary expression of value. It's the main culprit for how we establish the pecking order in our society. It leads to favoritism. And James said, Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Wow. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see a nation that is content, a neighborhood that is content? Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing to see a family that is content, that we've learned to enjoy what we have? That's why when you travel around the world to the poorest of nations, in Peru, in El Salvador, in Nepal, in Belize, where uh, some of our people have come back from a missions trip, you, you witness something spectacular. There is a contentedness and, and there is a sense of we've, we're okay with what we have. What a blessing.
I'm impressed with Paul when he says in Philippians 4.11, Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's full of full stomach or empty, plenty or little. I had a guy come into my office just a couple of weeks ago. Wanted to give some money to the Lord. I always love that when somebody comes in. But he wanted to give, he had something in mind. He wanted a special project. He wanted to know where he could give a sizable amount of money. And I'm so glad I didn't have to say a word about that. We just talked. We just had a great conversation together. And, and in the conversation, God showed him uniquely what God was calling him to do. It was just such a fantastic way of God just kind of working in his heart and seeing a need and responding to it. Look around. The fields are white unto harvest. Every nation of the world is a place to do some kingdom investing. Every neighborhood in our city is a place to do some kingdom investing. We want to start a new church plant somewhere in a community nearby. Every neighborhood is a place to do some kingdom investing. Look around to see how you can bless the world. And let me tell you that when you give, you will enjoy because it brings a deep satisfaction. Enjoy what God has given to you. Well, as I wrap this up, let me just say, when you preach a message like this, you start to review in your mind, what did you miss? What was obvious that you didn't say? Or you think about the difficult circumstances that people are going through. And many of us go through pain in our finances. It might be a crisis. You just have to read the papers, listen to the news, and you get a sense of, of the stress that's in the world. You just have to hear that a condo burned in, in the north part of the city, and, and the tenant said, and I don't have any insurance. And suddenly you're starting all over again. And what if you don't have employment? It's, it costs so much to live, and very little is coming in. And what about a health situation where you can't work, and the treatments are expensive and beyond Alberta health care, and there is just great stress? And sometimes we just need to find somebody to talk to. Don't carry it alone. Get some input. Get some advice. Others in the body of Christ who can help you think through some of these things. But these are some of the principles that help us get unstuck from financial stress. Let's pray together. Lord, may we be free to invest in kingdom ministry because we have understood your principles for living. Give us all wisdom as we think through how to recognize your ownership and as we seek to honor you. Help us to be good managers and good investors and, uh, and strong enough to say that's enough. Teach us and help us and give us what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.